Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast. Before we get started, I wanted to announce that available now for pre-order is Pastor Wilson's Plodactivity. Are you looking to be more productive in 2020? Then don't miss out on Plodactivity, a practical theology of work. Look for the link in the show notes and pre-order now. Happy Thanksgiving! Podcast. This is episode 120, 120. So I just uh, saw in the news today that Philip Johnson um, of intelligent design fame, not the Phil Johnson who's associated with John MacArthur, but Philip Johnson, who uh, a number of years ago uh, sort of launched the intelligent design movement with his book, uh, Darwin on Trial, uh, has gone to be with the Lord. So uh, I want to talk a little bit. Uh, thank I want to thank God for the uh, impact of Johnson's life and ministry, and evaluate it. This is this is uh, well. I'm just very grateful for the impact that Johnson had. That doesn't mean agreement on every detail, uh, but I, I think uh, a net evaluation of the impact he had. Uh, it's been his impact, his writing, his work has been far more damaging to Darwin Darwin and Darwinism than uh, the other way. So I met uh, Philip Johnson once. He, he came here and spoke here in Moscow and had dinner. I had dinner with him with some others. And one of the things that he, uh, he said that was kind of surprising to me, but then on reflection, uh, it wasn't at all. He, he said, you know, he wrote, he wrote what he did his critique of Darwin, by the way, I should back up. Philip Johnson was a lawyer by training. He was not a scientist. He was a lawyer. And his book was simply analyzing some of the fundamental arguments he was, uh, that, that undergird uh, Darwinism. And uh, Philip Johnson told us that he had uh, done this, you know, written this book and framed it in such a way that he didn't really get into the differences between young earth creationists and old earth creationists, or, or maybe even uh, some of the biologos people, the theistic, theistic evolutionists. He, he said he just he didn't want that to be the divisive sort of, uh, you know, uh, he wanted to sort of s- sidestep that. And the thing that he said that surprised him in the aftermath of, of that was all the love he got from young earth creationists and all the hostility he got from people who weren't. And I think, I think the reason for this is because uh, the, the form of argumentation that has been ushered in by uh, some of the intelligent design practitioner, practitioners is really, uh, to be blunt and honest, devastating uh, for Darwin. Just devastating for Darwin. Uh, Darwinism. Darwin is long gone, right? But Darwinism, uh, I don't think, has any way of answering the the problems and the stumpers that are being uh, presented to them. And because these arguments are are so devastating, 
they, they smack of too much certainty. And if you look at the, if you look at the broad sweep of um, non-Darwinists or anti-Darwinists, an intelligent design advocate at the top of his game is exuding as much certainty as a young earth creationist who was uh, steeped in the ranks of fundamentalism. And I think that some of the compromisers or the temporizers on the Christian side, uh, when it comes to the doctrine of creation and, and the, the collision between creation and evolution, the thing they really don't like is certainty. The thing they really don't like is, um, this is the way it is, sorry. Uh, if you um, take um, you know, uh, Michael Behe's writings, they're just, they're, it's slam dunk. This is, look, there's a God, deal with it. Um, or Douglas Axe has a wonderful book called Undeniable, and, and that, that uh, title sort of says it all, Undeniable. And people are, when, when people are confronted with something that's undeniable, they are uh, made kind of uncomfortable. Um, this is not to say that, um, that I'm, I've profited greatly from reading ID books, but I would call myself a creationist. I would call, I, I base what I believe about, about these things on the Bible. And I believe that since the Bible is true, it's going to line up with what we learn about the created order in our investigations elsewhere. So I can profit, I can profit from intelligent design uh, uh, arguments and works and uh, accept them where they're compelling and reject them where they're not compelling. So uh, here's one, let me just mention one area where I think some ID uh, advocates are, are misstepping, and that is... Um, People are saying, all we're saying is that these things that we're uh, studying exhibit design. We are not saying who the designer is. So, uh, the, so one, of, uh, one evolutionist scientist said, yes, we're not mock this position, I think rightly, by saying, yes, we're not saying that God is the designer. We're not saying that God is the person behind this intelligent design, she said mockingly. We're just saying it's someone with the same skill set. Um, it reminds me of Mark Twain's uh, joke about we now know that we now know that uh, Homer was not the author of the Iliad. It, it turns out it was a, a another blind Greek poet with the same name. Uh, so basically, whoever this designer is has the same skill set that that God does. Or if you um, just let's say you postulate, no, no, it could be super aliens. You know, these, these super aliens came down X number of years ago, and they, they did all these things that exhibit design. It could be that. Well, the problem with that, that kind of a kick the can down the road problem is that these super aliens themselves need to be accounted for. They exhibit design. So if basically, if it's any, if the designer is inside the cosmos, if the designer is inside the created order, then that designer is exhibiting design himself and needs to be accounted for. Um, and the only way out of this is to simply say, look, it's God. Look, it's God behind everything. 
there's been a torrent of intelligent design books that have um, uh, followed in the wake of Philip Johnson's uh, publication of Darwin on Trial, uh, which we can rightly call Philip Johnson's Legacy, the Discovery Institute, um, uh, uh, Meyer, uh, Behe, um, Jonathan, oh, who did the Icons of Evolution? Jonathan, somebody, um, spacing out, Douglas Axe. A number of these people have done really fine work. And um, when, the, when the great oak of Darwinism falls, uh, a number of the uh, blows from the axe will have been delivered by intelligent design advocates, and we can thank the Lord for uh, Philip Johnson setting them all in motion. So continuing on with our podcast, episode 120, we come again to uh, our hamartiology uh, section. And um, this is our study of sin, working our way through the Greek New Testament. The the Greek word harpax, H-A-R-P-A-X, harpax, refers to a devouring kind of greed, the sort that is willing to put the screws to others in pursuit of the money it wants. In one place, the authorized version translates it as ravening. In three other places, closely spaced, it renders it as extortioners. Um, So uh, Jesus warns us about the greedy side of false prophets. Just follow the money. In Matthew 7.15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. There's our word, ravening wolves. False teachers don't literally eat people. And we shouldn't make it too much of a spiritual metaphor either, where we take it, about, take it as talking about the devouring of their souls. False teachers devour their wallets, devour their bank accounts. False teachers fleece the flock. They devour the substance of the people that they are, um, that they are pursuing. The proud Pharisees exulted in the fact that uh, the proud Pharisee, excuse me, exulted in the fact that he was not like one of these people. He was not an extortioner. He said, "This is in Luke eighteen eleven. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself: God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners. There it is, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. Uh, the publican was a tax collector, which meant that he was a legal extortioner." They were basically uh, quislings. They were people who were Hebrews that were collaborating with the Roman government. The Roman government said, you're authorized to collect taxes for us, and so uh, this is the amount we want, and anything you get that's above that, you can skim, you can keep. So um, the tax gatherers would really put the screws to the people, and they had the force of the law behind them. So basically... um, Extortioners and blackmailers would be people who are doing this off budget. People are doing this, you know, not with a badge. Uh, the the publicans or the tax collectors would be people who are extort, extorting money uh, with a badge. And the Pharisee said, "God, I thank you that I'm not an extortioner, or even as this publican is, who is another kind of extortioner." Paul uses the same word to describe what it was like out in the world of paganism. He said, in effect, that dealing with such robbers is simply the cost of living in a world like ours. So he says in in 1 Corinthians 5.10, Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous, 
or extortioners, there's our word, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. So Paul is saying, uh, I told you to stay away from bad company. I, I told you to not hang out with uh, CD lowlifes. But then Paul says, I, I wasn't talking about non-Christians. I, I wasn't telling you to stay away from non-Christians. I was telling you to stay away from Christians who are living that way. Okay? Uh, and he says here in 1 Corinthians 5.10, if, if I were telling you to stay away from non-Christians who are like that, then you'd, you'd have to leave the planet. You have to go out of the world. So by this, he did not mean that we should be willing to keep company with such people in the church. That would be intolerable, as we see in the next verse. So um, Paul says, you should be willing to keep company with extortioners. You should be willing to keep company with idolaters if it's out in the marketplace, if it's out in the forum. But he did not mean that we should be willing to keep company with such people who name the name of Christ. That would be intolerable. And that's in verse 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, there's our word, with such an one, no, not to eat. So, so do not sit down to share table fellowship with someone who, who lives this way and who calls himself a Christian. Okay? In the next chapter, after warning us about Christians engaging in lawsuits against fellow believers in front of unbelievers, he shows us how serious this sin actually is. It is a bar against the gates of heaven. He says in 1 Corinthians 6.10, Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Of God. So, my book review for episode 120 of our podcast is um, a book by uh, a woman named Nemeth, last name of Nemeth, N E M E T H. And the book is entitled In Defense of Troublemakers. In Defense of Troublemakers. Now, this is not a defense of bomb throwing, uh, but it is um, it's an argument that. Uh, wants to uh, lean against the idea that you want to get what's what corporate America calls buy-in from every department or buy-in from everybody. Everybody's got to sign off. Everybody agrees. Now, of course, in the Bible, like-mindedness is a good thing. The Bible exhorts us to like-mindedness. We ought to cultivate like-mindedness. But we, we want a genuine like-mindedness that's grounded in the truth and we want to get to the truth first before we get to the like-mindedness. What, what uh, this woman helpfully shows, she, she cites a number of experiments and, um, you know, experiments in, in, uh, conducted by psychologists that evaluate how people handle the dissenter, how people handle it when someone dissents. I'm reminded of a cartoon I saw many years ago where uh, someone sticking his head out of a jury room, speaking to the bailiff out in the hallway, and he asks for, uh, uh, we'd like 11 hamburgers and one grilled cheese. <laughs> uh, so you've got this one holdout in the jury room. Now, what, what Nemeth does in this book is shows how genuine, passionate dissent improves the decision-making. It, and, this, and this does not presuppose that the dissenter is correct. Um, 
it what it means is that if the dissenter is wrong and eventually overridden, uh, the he he's overridden for the right reasons. He's overridden in such a way as to uh, have the decision making process be a lot more defensible than it than than it was. So, and the 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 sorts of experiments that they would do is they would uh, bring people in to have them identify a color, let's say, and they'd have, um, you know, is this blue-green or is this blue? And they would put in these groups one person who would uh, purposely see the wrong color, you know, uh, argue, you know, a true, uh, someone who would argue the case and, you know, go to the mat for for it. Now, um, these and she she describes multiple scenarios, multiple tests, multiple ways of uh, uh, processing this, and she sees that when there is someone who digs in their heels, they they lock their knees, dig in their heels, and say, "No, I'm not. That's not what I'm going to say. Uh, that's not, I'm not going to go along with you just because you all said it." Uh, the majority is benefited or blessed by this, whether or not the dissenter is factually correct. Now, she also spends some time talking about, uh, uh, the, you, you may be familiar with the term, the devil's advocate. Uh, when And this comes from the Roman Catholic uh, Church. In the process of canonizing someone, and in Roman Catholic theology, when someone is canonized, uh, this the declaration is is made by the church that this person is known to be in heaven. So, um, and that's in Roman Catholic theology, that's a saint. So, um, the saints are those who are in in heaven. Uh, for Protestants, evangelical Protestants, the saints are all the people filling up the pews. The saints are the uh, parishioners, the congregants, the members of the church. But in Roman Catholic um, uh, theology, a saint is someone known to be in heaven. And when the church makes the declaration of someone that, that they're known to be in heaven, uh, that person has been canonized. And what they would do when they went through the, this process of examining that person's life and did they do any miracles and you know, so on, they would appoint someone uh, to oppose the process. And that appointed person who was op- uh, opposed to the process was called the devil's advocate. So the devil's advocate is the person who takes up the contrary position just for the sake of having the contrary arguments expressed. And, uh, and these tests that, they, that they've done have shown that the, the presence of devil's advocates, because everybody knows that it's not opposition that is uh, heartfelt opposition, the person's opposing it, because because they're the devil's advocate and that's their job, um, so that it doesn't have the same salutary effect on the whole decision making, um, on the whole decision making process. So, in defense of troublemakers, if you like reading, uh, it was not a slog to read through. It was interesting. If you're in, if you're interested in this topic, if you serve on a board or if you serve on com- lots of committees. If you are in situations where um, people demand or expect consensus, uh, this would be a, uh, if you serve on a board of elders or a board of deacons or a school board, 
this would be a a good book to to read and uh, internalize. Mm-hmm.